Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Can you smell that, Ed? That is the smell of autumn on the breeze. It's not here yet, but we are here with the final cheerful interview of the summer. Just just take that in. You get the aroma of shoe polish, new pencil cases. You sound like you quite like the changing of the seasons. I definitely feel melancholy, but I don't always think that's a bad thing. Mm. But let's not, not wish the summer away. I no. think okay. really September is... Still summer. Yeah, really. It's a slow fade into the autumn, isn't it? We've reached a final cheerful interview of the summer, and I really hope people have enjoyed uh, our author interviews over the summer. We'll be back next week when normal service will be resumed. And please do keep your suggestions coming on what cheerful topics you might want us to cover. Cheerfulpodcast.com. So to our last interview then, and I wasn't around for this one, so I let you tough it out alone, didn't I? Yes, and it was a total pleasure to talk to today's author, and that's Ben Goldsmith, who is the author of a new book called God is an Octopus, Loss, Love and a Calling to Nature. It is out now, and I have to say there's quite a lot of sadness in this book because lots of the focus of it is about the the tragic death of his 15-year-old daughter Iris and how he coped with that and how he found strength and comfort from nature following her loss. It's, it is a terrible tragedy that happened to Ben. He writes very well about it. I would definitely recommend the book and I hope people really enjoy the interview. Well, I, I, um, I'm really curious to listen to it. Definitely. Uh, but for now, uh, we'll leave you with this conversation. Until next week. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So it's a real pleasure to have Ben Goldsmith with us. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Ed. Ben, your book is a very moving account of how you dealt with the death of your 15-year-old daughter, Iris, in a, in a tragic accident, which we will, which we will talk about. The book is also about nature, epitomised in the subtitle Lost Love and a Calling to Nature. Maybe we could just start with you telling us where your love for nature and the environment came from and, and maybe whether it was a big part of your upbringing. I think all children begin life with an innate fascination for the natural world. Find a toddler that isn't awed by a bird's nest with blue eggs in it or by a frog by the side of a pond. I mean, children do just love animals. I think a lot of children 
for some reason, leave that love of nature behind in childhood. I didn't. I think that's because I grew up around adults that love nature. My older brother, Zach, is six, six years older than me. And in his teenage years, still wandered around with a Save the Hedgehogs t-shirt on. And we were endlessly building ponds and, and getting up very early to go looking for foxes and badgers. All our free time was spent out in nature in one way or another. I think with lots of people, that love of nature falls somewhat dormant as they grow older. But it never goes away completely. There is a, an innate yearning to be close to nature in everyone, even if a lot of people don't fully know it. Has that been something that you have passed on to your kids? I spend a lot of time with my children outdoors. We spend a lot of time immersed in nature. And our home is in South Somerset, which is one of the most nature-rich places in southern England. So we're lucky enough to be raising our children here. And and, and that makes it a bit easier. And of course, we recognise that, that it's a tremendously privileged position. A lot of people in this country don't have access to nature. You've you really got to be either rural or rich to have a lot of nature around you in, in this country. And I... I think that's an iniquity that was somewhat exposed during the COVID lockdowns. A lot of people just didn't really have anywhere to go, be in nature during that time. Let, let's talk about Iris. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about her and what, what she was like, if that's all right? Yeah, I was, um, we, we were young. You know, my first wife, Kate, who lives just over the brow of the hill here, and with whom I remain very close, and I, we, we were really young when we had Iris. I mean, we were 23 and... And, and 21 respectively, she and I. And um, so the whole thing was quite bohemian. We had this little girl kind of strapped to us and we, we ran around London and stayed with my brother down in Devon and with Kate's mother up in Suffolk. And, and um, you know, in a way, as she grew up, Iris felt a little bit like a, a younger sister, you know, to me, as, as much as a daughter, in the sense that the age gap was so close. Um, and she was a fiery little character, you know, w w way ahead of her years from the get-go. You know, she always kind of got it in a conversation. She always hold her own in a conversation with adults. She was a really sh sharp um, little creature and, and, and confident, confident enough to use that. And, and so as she grew up, she was obviously the centre of attention among the other young people. And she was kind of very, very popular and academically bright. And she used her own popularity and her own confidence to lift up. The, the younger ones and the weaker ones in, in the school. And after she died, in fact, some of the letters that we got, I mean, were just kind of, you know, utterly heartbreaking. It took me a year before I could muster the strength to read them, but letters from girls who said that Iris had made her laugh at a difficult time or, you know, at, 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 and, but by being happy herself, she made the rest of us feel happy. And you know, one girl was being bullied at, at, at the school they were at and Iris had frog marched the other girl over to apologize in person. And, it was just, you know, she was a kind, caring, strong, confident girl. And, um, and it's just unbearable, really, to try to, to try to figure out how it can be that a girl that was so sparkling in preparation for her future, you know, ultimately didn't have one because she, as you know, she died age 15 and a half in a, in a moment of idiocy on a farm vehicle here in, in Somerset, just a utility, like a six seater, utility vehicle with a truck bed at the back they used to cart stuff around and it was a utility vehicle and not the kind of thing you imagine someone would die on but as it turns out those those Polaris vehicles are susceptible to turn over and we'd never had a problem in 10 years and she was messing about with her friend on a particularly dry summer's day in July 2019 and she managed to turn it over and the friend was completely unscathed she said to me it didn't seem so bad she said to me the friend until she realized that Iris was pinned underneath it and no one got to her quick enough. You know, to, blood flow to her brain was 
was was blocked by the vehicle over her neck and she wasn't able no one was able to lift it i wasn't here i i was playing a cricket match you know in a village an hour away with my sons and my nephews and kind of family cricket team we have and um i got the dreadful call from my ex-wife kate who was driving from london to get back there and and by the time we got back um it she we realized she was dead and, you know i um i'd known because no one was picking up you know, I was ringing and ringing and then Kate called me from her car, poor girl, driving on her own from London. Poor thing, at least I was with a friend. And she called me and said, you know why they're not picking up, Ben? No one's picking up because she's dead. I said, don't say it, please don't say it. And um, fell into a kind of fetal position in the front of that car. And, and when we got there, of course, we found the police and the paramedics and the dreadful scene and ambulance and Iris lying inside that ambulance. So it's sort of every parent's worst nightmare, you know, a darkness that you can't really imagine, you know, you know, en engulfed us, you know, in an, in an instant. Um, but her, I remember saying, Iris, how could it have been Iris? You know, this child that was so vibrant, you know, so dynamic. She wanted to be a barrister. That's what her goal was. I want to be a barrister that can win battles for nature. You know, that's what she wanted. She, she was a you know, d d lover of nature like I, like I am. You know, she, she did certainly... I was able to pass that love on to her. You know, she would have done great things and um, she didn't get to. I mean, it's incredibly moving, Ben, listening to you. All of our listeners will really, you know, feel the pain and loss with you. Well, thank you for sharing, for sharing all of that. And, and she sounds like she was an incredible, incredible person. You talk a lot in the book about, I suppose the best way I can put it is, is is coping with it. I guess before we get on to the coping question, what made you write the book? Do you think this is the kind of thing that you imagine you can never you can never survive? You know, forget coping. You wonder if you could ever survive this. And I knew almost immediately in in the logical part of my mind, I knew almost immediately I have to survive this because I have other children. I have a young wife. I've got people who need me and depend on me. I've got I've got, um, you know, a, a family, a mum. I've got loads of people who sort of rely on me and need me. And, you know, I, I, it wouldn't have been fair on anyone for me to just melt away, which is what you sort of feel like doing. You know, you, this is the kind of thing you imagine you'll never survive. And I knew that that wasn't going to be a choice. So, so you have to find a way and part of the way is in the small things you know the you know like like a cup of tea on a sunny morning or just moment momentary cracks in the darkness through which the light shines it, it, there are moments of relief even moments of humor i remember one of my sons managed somehow to fall into the pond in the days afterwards and it was amusing like we laughed what i found even even at the beginning of that time is that is that is that I found nature beautiful. You know, that sounds so mundane, but it was so amazing to me. You know, even in those first days, I remember walking down, the, we have a pond you know, d down the hill where, where, on the bend of a river where, where I swim quite often. And, and, um, and it's very beautiful and wild down there and there's dragonflies and the place kind of hums with life, especially in the summer. And this was late July. And, and I, I, I remember going down to swim in that pond and emerging from the water and the kind of sun was shining you know, th through the trees, kind of low in the sky. It was kind of late evening. And I remember thinking, my God, it's beautiful. You know, the nature all around us, God, the world is amazing. And I was astonished that, 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 that I had that feeling in that moment. And, and I took to being in nature as a way of surviving 
that difficult time. You know, I took to going 10 times a day down to that pond, sometimes on my own, sometimes with my wife, swimming, just sitting, watching the dragonflies, listening to birds. Just being in nature was by far the most important tool I had for momentarily feeling okay during a very, very difficult time. And I felt in some way held by nature. And I sort of realized that the love of nature that I'd had all my life hadn't been a kind of like a hobby, like stamp collecting, you know, or train spotting. You know, this was something far deeper. This was a kind of, you know, a, a kind of yearning of some sort. And when I needed it, it was there for me. We know that people in hospitals, you know, if they can see nature out of their hospital window, you know, they get better quicker. You know, we know that prisoners are less likely to reoffend if they spend their prison time tending to a vegetable garden and being outside. Contact with nature is deeply healing and, and, and we need it on some visceral level that we can't fully understand. Scientists are starting to, you know, you know recognize that, you know, the trees in the woods produce compounds that when we breathe them in, make us feel happier. They lower our blood pressure and our, slow down our heart rate. You know, we don't know why the trees ha have this effect on us. We don't know what it's about, but the trees are in a chemical sense talking to us in the same way that certain beans will, you know, when they're attacked by aphids, will release compounds into the air that attract aphid-eating wasps. You know, there is a kind of interconnectedness, a kind of conversation going on that we can't fully get our heads around, but we need it and it it matters. And so nature was... I discovered a kind of calling and was the most important thing for me in surviving that difficult time. More than a year after the, the, the accident, I wanted to lay out, you know, th th this kind of experience I'd had, the year of magical thinking, kind of to quote Joan Didion, you know, a year of searching, you know, for answers and of finding meaning and solace in nature. And and so I, I, I thought writing a book, even if I never published it, would be a good and helpful thing to do. And so I did. What's also illuminating in the book is that at the same time, I think I'm right in saying you, after Iris's death, you you embarked on a big sort of transformation project for your farm, didn't you? I'm in a place in South Somerset where a bunch of different people are looking to restore a great wood pasture that used to be known as Selwood. You know, Selwood Forest, it was a King John hunting forest, a bit like the New Forest or Nottingham Forest, just didn't have the same legal underpinnings. In the Victorian era, it was enclosed and turned into the kind of patchwork quilt of green neon fields you see today. Well, a whole bunch of neighbours in this area are starting to restore that wood pasture, and I'm one of them. I'm lucky enough to have what used to be a smallish dairy farm um, one of my neighbours is a community NGO. Um, another one is a third generation beef farmer. And so between us, we're restoring the core of what used to be Selwood Forest, which basically means ripping out all the fences, you know, dramatically reducing the amount of grazing animals. So we have a small number of native horned cattle now, whereas it used to be many, many sheep, which are, of course, forensic and rather disastrous in, in the way they graze. And the reawakening of nature here, which coincided with that time in my life, has been something so extraordinary to watch. Just this summer, we found glowworms now hovering over the wetland at the bottom of the valley that's been created by a family of beavers. Glowworms haven't been known here since the war. There's a cacophony of birdsong. Across every indicator, nature is rebounding here in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. And I've never seen anything so amazing. So we're we're in this part of England in South Somerset that's becoming a centre for rewilding, and it's been very joyful. You talked about Iris's siblings and your sort of sense of duty, responsibility to them, obviously. You said you'd passed on the love of nature to all of your kids. Part of the book is about exploring nature with them. Indeed, talk to us about the bustards. 
dressing up as an adult bustard. <laughs> yeah, I took I took my children to visit a guy called David Waters, who's a former army figure who who's devoted his post army life to reintroducing. Uh, Britain's heaviest flying bird, the great bustard, to Salisbury Plain. It's a species that's been extinct for a long time in Britain. And I mean, this this guy is just extraordinary in the perseverance he's had to show. I mean, he used to sit in the kind of freezing spring of on, on the kind of steps of Russia, collecting eggs with permission of the Russian government, then transferred his activities to Spain, which also has great bustards. And hatch these creatures out and trial and error without any support from government, without any support from the big NGOs, you know, learning how to how to raise these animals. And you know, he learned, for example, that with bustards, you, you have to f- look like a bustard when you feed them, that you have to make sure that they're frightened of humans. So he has these costumes that we had to wear to go and meet, you know, they're sort of like a pair of busted pajamas with a kind of fake beak on a hat. And we had to sort of squat down wearing these these suits. And does that work? I mean, does that, so they're less put off by that than they are by humans not dressed in busted costumes. The very idea of it is to ensure that they are put off by humans because they never see one. Oh, I see. And then he, he's been releasing these and now there are somewhere between 70 and 100 of these massive birds breeding on Salisbury Plain and it's become quite a thing. And I, I, I suppose, you know, reintroduction of species has always been something I've cared about a lot. You know, Britain has lost a lot of species. I mean, the list is as long as my arm of, of species that have gone extinct or have significantly declined in number in Britain as compared with other countries. I mean, all of our big animals, you think, you know, the Romans were taking from, from the northern parts of the British Isles, they were taking bears to, to, to fight in the Colosseum. They were taking aurochs, you know, the giant wild cattle, you know, the, that used to roam across most of Western Europe. We've lost wild boar. We lost beavers. Of course, they're now back, both of those species. But for several hundred years, they were gone. And a whole suite of different things, right down to pool frogs and tree frogs and harvest mice and water voles and all these things have either declined massively or disappeared. And putting them back, I think, is totemic for the restoration of nature. And it's a way of bringing people into the movement of nature restoration, the species reintroductions, because they're so exciting. So I, I, I've always been fanatical. At age 15, I wrote a letter to Country Life magazine saying I think that their readers lack imagination when it comes to the potential reintroduction of wild boar, which is a keystone species, uh, the gardener of the woods, some people say. And I won the star letter. I got a pair of binoculars from, from the magazine. I didn't tell my teenage friends at the time. But two weeks later, the Duke of Wellington, aged 99, wrote a letter to Country Life, say, referring to letter Ben Goldsmith in the previous issue. He said, if wild boar are spotted on my estate at Stratfield Stale, I'll, I'll instruct my keepers to shoot them. I see. So you didn't go down well with him. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. In the subtitle, it's A Calling to Nature, Lost Love and A Calling to Nature. And as our listeners will be able to tell from what you've been saying, you are a very, very eloquent campaigner for nature restoration and indeed drawing attention to the the nature crisis we face in this country. Talk to us just about that, because we, you know, we talk a lot about the climate crisis, and rightly so. Perhaps we talk less about the nature crisis that we face. 
nature and climate are indivisible from each other as issues. Even if we do, by miracle, manage to decarbonize our human activities fast enough to avert a dangerous changing of the climate, you know, even if we do wean ourselves off fossil fuels, even if we do that on time, if we don't simultaneously fix nature, then we're toast, in my opinion. We know that, that natural systems are the best way of drawing carbon back out the atmosphere. So to fix the climate crisis, we also need to fix the nature crisis. And we need nature on a whole bunch of different levels. We, we need nature to fix the, the volatility in our hydrological cycle. You know, it, why is it that a whole suite of towns up and down Britain flood every winter? And then we have hosepipe bans every summer. It's because we've stripped nature out of our national parks and off the hills so that when it rains, the water just deluges into people's houses and then there's none left by the summer. Nature is supposed to act like a sponge, absorbing winter rainfall, storing it, purifying it and releasing it slowly throughout the year. So we need it for the water cycle and we need it on a more visceral level. You know, As I discovered four years ago, we need nature for our mental or spiritual well-being. We're utterly connected with nature in ways that are beyond our understanding. And by trashing it, we're sort of trashing ourselves as well. So, so we need to fix this issue. And we have an enormous opportunity, I think, now to do that. Because most of the nature has been stripped from the land in Britain because of heavy subsidies for the wrong kinds of activities in the wrong places. You know, 85% of the food we produce in this country comes from just 20% of the land, mostly in the east, you know, the good arable land of kind of Cambridgeshire, Lincolnshire and so on. So rewarding land managers and farmers and so on in most of Britain for restoring nature makes perfect sense because they're not producing much food anyway. The least productive 20% of our land produces less than 2% of the food. Prioritising nature makes perfect sense in those places. And the farming can go on, but a gentler, more traditional way of farming, which is conducive to the recovery of nature of the kind that we're seeing all around me here in Somerset. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to the kind of nature restoration that you are campaigning for and speaking out about? So I, I think the overarching issue is a kind of disconnection from nature across the board. That's not just politicians, but it's society wide. I think people don't know what nature is meant to be. We've lost a connection with nature. So we, we, you know, we look out over the kind of rolling green fields of Devon and we think that's nature when in fact colour, wildflowers, birdsong, wildlife have really been drained from those landscapes over the last 40 or 50 years. Or we go to the kind of bleak hills and valleys of the Lake District, see nothing but sheep, and we think that's wild and it's nature, but it's not. It's one of the most ecologically degraded landscapes in the whole of Europe, the Lake District. So I think that's the overarching issue is we need to reconnect people with nature and help people to understand what it's meant to look like. You know, untidy, rough, self-willed nature filled with life looks very different from most of Britain that we see today. Practically speaking, I think the National Farmers Union has an unhealthy hold over government environment department and over our kind of national psyche. It doesn't speak for most farmers. It doesn't want change. In DEFRA, a species reintroductions task force was created and there was promise of funding of seven or eight million pounds a year specifically to support species reintroductions in England. Well, what happened to that? And it was swept under the carpet because of objections by the National Farmers Union. And now the cross-party EFRA committee, which comprises both Labour and Conservative MPs and others, came out with a report two or three weeks ago. And it said, 
we must have more species reintroductions, but here's all the ways that we're going to make sure they don't happen. And we're even going to have a rethink on beavers. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone in this country that isn't excited about the return of beavers. You're a big advocate for beavers. Yeah, I mean, beavers, I think, are the most powerful keystone species that we have. So beavers, which disappeared from Britain five or six hundred years ago, hunted nearly to extinction across Europe. They're making a steady recovery now, including in Britain as a result of unlicensed or illegal reintroductions. And what they do is they build little dams along all the creeks and streams that exist in a river system. So those beaver dams collect water and those pools behind those dams absolutely filled with life. In one trial site in Devon, they found a 16,000% increase in amphibians, you know, frogs, toads and newts, kingfishers, ducks, wading birds. All life just moves into these beaver wetlands. And it's not just the water, they bring light because they build the dams out of the trees that line the river. So they coppice the trees and use the wood as building material. And then you get the fresh growth of those trees, which are havens for butterflies and all other things. So beaver wetlands are a kind of habitat that we don't know very well because it hasn't existed in Britain for so long. But what we find is that it's extremely important habitat. And it only exists along the bottom of the valleys, not places that are particularly conducive to building or farming anyway. What's the case against the beavers? Well, it's mostly psychological. We're used to order and control. So, so what are the obstacles for nature restoration in Britain? It's a British desire for order and control. And we have this idea that, that nature is chaos and we must bring order. The reality is, is that we bring chaos. You know, the flooding and the drought cycle being a good example. And it's about saying, OK, we're going to give that species a much greater degree of autonomy and we're going to let go along that part of my land, that that stretch of watercourse becomes beaver habitat. So I, I, I think it's traditional vested interests combined with a kind of general disconnection from nature. Can I just ask you about the, you made this point about the NFU. I mean, wouldn't partly what they say be that farmers feel very, very on the margins in terms of, you know, livelihoods and so on. And you know, in a way, we're talking about quite big changes and quite big transition and change can be scary and potentially threatening to people. So I industries that have lived on subsidies for a very long time become very resistant to any kind of change. You know, that, that's, that's a, a fundamental truth that we've seen everywhere. Look at energy, for example, how much the coal industry has resisted change. You know, change is something that's always happened in our countryside. It's always been in a state of flux. So this idea that we must now preserve in aspic, you know, what we see today is, is, is anathema to anything that's happened in the past. But yes, we must have a just transition for farmers because they are put upon. You know, the buying power of the supermarkets, I think, has often um, been unfair on farmers. You know, there's a lot stacked against farming. And I don't think the new environmental land management scheme is generous enough. It's, it's definitely a step in the right direction. It's going to reward farmers for making big changes, but it may not be quite generous enough. You know, when, when you think the government spends £20 billion a year of taxpayers' money fixing the roads, you know, two and a half billion a year doesn't seem like very much when you're talking about 75% of our land from which we want clean water, clean air, food, amenity, employment, and all these other things. So I think a doubling of the environmental land management budget would be my number one suggestion to any political party coming into power. We can have it all, I think, if we get this subsidy change right. Now, the book is about loss. It's about nature. And it's also a sort of spiritual journey for you after the loss of, of Iris. You go through quite a lot of different experiences. You talk to the parents of, of other children that have, have passed away. You, you go on an ayahuasca retreat. 
Um, you talk to a medium. Talk to us about your sort of spirituality as part of this. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't raised religious. My father's father was Jewish. I was christened and confirmed Church of England um, by my mother. I mean, I really did it because it gave me a week off school each time. And you know, I, I wasn't really drawn to religion. And I wasn't really drawn to the, those kind of big questions. You know, what, you know, do we have a soul? Does our soul survive death? Is there some kind of higher plan? Now, I always felt there's enough here in this world. You know, the nature is amazing enough. That's my religion. In fact, I probably, to some degree, held the big religions somewhat complicit in the destruction of nature. You know, I don't. How can it be that eighty percent of the world population believes in God and participates in some kind of organized religious activity, whilst trashing nature? You know, how you know, how how has religion permitted that to happen? When you lose someone very close to you, especially when you lose a child so young, you you start begging for answers. You know where the hell have they gone? You beg for it to be true. You know that that, that there is some kind of ongoing existence after death, and and I immediately threw myself into searching for some ongoing trace. I became fascinated by the idea that most people alive today, and certainly most people who've ever lived across all continents, across all spiritual practices, believe that our soul exists on some kind of a continuum that stretches before earthly life and after it. How did they come to this view? What does it mean? And I had a, you know, a, a pretty mind-blowing experience with a spiritual medium that at a time, you know, which in, in the madness of my grief was of huge comfort to me. You know, and I don't know how she did what she did. I mean, maybe she read my mind. I don't, it was magic what she did. It's something extraordinary. She was suggested to me by another bereaved mother who'd lost her teenage son in an accident a decade earlier. And it, it was just completely unbelievable what she did to the extent that I left blinking into the rain in the street in London and thought how, you know, Iris was there in, in that in that moment, you know, for that hour. I met various different religious people in my life. I have a Buddhist friend who took me to his meet his preferred monk at the Vihari in Acton. I went to meet a rabbi in North London. I spent time with the vicar here in Somerset. I read a lot of books. I read Carl Gustav Jung. And I don't know that I found any answers. You know, I I, I, I came to the view that we're part of a grand mystery that is beyond our ability to understand. You know, I'm of the view that nature and everything that we see is, is the face of something far bigger. But I don't know what it means or what it looks like. You know, I, I think that you know, the, in quantum physics, they suggest that time and space are in some way an illusion, you know, a deeply persistent illusion, as how Einstein referred to, to, to the very concept of time. It's all certainly beyond my intellect to try to come up with any answers I just believe with every fiber of my being that I will be together again in some way with my iris. I just can't articulate how or why or what it means because I think it's beyond us. But the feeling of her closeness at times, it, it's so unlike everything that I perceive with my senses, but it, I know she's around in some way. And I know I'm not alone in feeling this. I have you know, spent time with other parents who've lost children they all have some kind of story that, along the same lines. I don't know how to explain it, they say, but I, I feel that they're still with us. So I, I, um, I'm not religious still, but I am certainly a believer in, in, a, in a higher plan of sorts. And I think that nature is the primordial manifestation of what, whatever that is. I did this thing called ayahuasca. I, it was very, anyone who knows me personally would know that's very un-me. I, I guess it's probably a very un-you thing as well. And ayahuasca is a very, very potent psychedelic tea that they, that they consume as part of their spiritual lives across the Amazon basin. I was persuaded by some quite surprising 
people that this is something that I should explore. And so I did a bunch of research and thought, well, if I'm going to see where Iris is, this is the best chance I've got. So I participated over two nights in a in, in a retreat in which we drank this very foul tasting brew. Now, Aya means spirit and Waska means vine. And I can only describe what happened as a kind of very profound, lucid dreaming state. You know, you're flat, you feel like you're on a kind of brink of death. As it happens, it seems that it's perfectly safe if you're physically well. And, you know, in some parts of the world now, it's, you know, it's, it's being used to treat a range of different conditions. Imperial are doing a study with hardline Palestinians and Israelis, you know, to try and foster a kind of feeling of peace. And experiments going on in Toronto and Princeton and Yale and Sydney, Australia, people with addictions and bereavement and depression. And you know, the, these psychedelic treatments of various kinds are becoming quite mainstream for people going through the kind of thing I was going through. And in my case, this lucid dream state brought me a kind of connection with my daughter that was deeply meaningful and beautiful and and was perhaps the most important thing I did in trying to come to terms with the loss. I don't think I'll ever do it again. I don't feel I need to, but it goes down as one of the most important events of my life. Let's end by talking about the solace you found in nature. You said something very important earlier, which is that the pandemic taught us this has got to be for everyone. And there's a a massive issue of social justice here, isn't there? I met Sadiq Khan, London Mayor, in the Glasgow Climate Conference in 2021 and had this exact conversation with him. And we agreed together to set up the Rewilding London Task Force and brought together some brilliant people from London and from beyond to figure out principally how we could bring nature to people. And we also need to bring people to nature. And I th- think that we need increased funding for getting especially school children out of the city and into nature to have meaningful and positive experiences. I think we need to make sure that everyone has a right to spend time in real nature. And that doesn't mean a, you know, a, a mown lawn in a park. It means real nature where they can feel the life humming and shining all around them. We really need nature. It should be the overriding purpose of our time to fix this climate crisis that is becoming so terrifying, to grab the opportunities to invest in a future that is much more interesting, more vibrant, it's cleaner, it's better. It's, the solutions to the climate and environment problem are so great. They're so exciting. Now, you, you asked earlier about the fears of farmers. Well, the, 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 the best and the only pathway for breathing life back into the communities that live and work in our remotest landscapes is rewilding. And so I think that it's a very optimistic future if we choose to grab it. We just need to get politicians to grab it. Ben, uh, it's been an incredibly moving experience to have you joining us. The, the book is God is an Octopus, Lost Love and a Calling to Nature. We, we, we share your pain and are really so grateful to you for sharing it with us and talking about it and also talking about nature and the solace that you found uh, in it. Thank you so much for joining us. Ed, thank you so much for having me. And I can't help but mention that I have also brought out a podcast series, which is purely a good news podcast series. You know, yours is Reasons to be Cheerful. Mine is called Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith. I've put out six episodes. I've got six more being released in September, in which I interview people who are doing the biggest and the most exciting rewilding projects around the world. Rewilding the World download it now from all good podcast apps thank you so much ed ben thank you so much send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com 
Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Thank you for listening to this summer cheerful conversation. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.